Welcome to Grace on the Go. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. This episode is a sermon from Sunday, October 15th, 2023, called Through the Eyes of Matthew, See the Bride, given by Deacon Aaron Hayes. The scripture passage highlighted for today's sermon comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, has given her to wear. So God's grace and his peace are yours in Jesus Christ our Lord. And as always, there's a sermon outline for you if you'd like to fill that out in the bulletin or if you'd like to just have some notes for yourself. And it'll be projected for you, of course, if you're online or if you're watching the screen. And so we're going to continue the story about seeing the gospel through the eyes of Matthew, the tax collector. And so to reframe this for us, just as a reminder, it's interesting to kind of set the scene on what Matthew's status is in this culture. And so we've mentioned this briefly. Pastor Dinger has done a good job with this, but it's always good to remind ourselves of where he's coming from. So first off, with Matthew, realize that he is a traitor to the Jews because he's serving the hated Romans. And so because he's a traitor, he would have been what we in America in the Revolutionary War would have been calling Benedict Arnold, if you recognize that name, who basically sold out his country because he didn't get the promotion that he wanted. And so Ben Franklin once famously said uh, that Judas betrayed one person, but Benedict Arnold betrayed an entire nation. That's how hated he was in American circles. This is Matthew. Matthew was hated by the Jews as a traitor because he's serving the Romans. And yet the Romans wouldn't have trusted him either because if you're willing to betray your fellow people and collect taxes, yeah, you're useful to me, but I'm not going to trust you either. So he's not trustworthy to the Jews and he's not trustworthy to the Romans. The Pharisees, the religious leaders that are especially on the ground with the people during this time, would have found him to be unclean. Some of you might remember about 10 years ago, there was a Bible mini-series that was on for a while. There's a scene where there's a Pharisee, a tax collector, and he points to, he says, hey Jesus, see those tax collectors over there? He says, they're stinking vermin. That's the word he uses. They're stinking vermin. And then he just kind of gets kind of puffed up and says, you should keep your distance. And then of course Jesus uh, gets close and even calls Matthew in that scene, which is pretty incredible. But that's the attitude. You don't associate with such sinners. You don't associate with them at all. Another thing to think about here, they're also considered greedy, of course, because in order to get your living, in order to make an income, you had to skim some off the top. So you charged extra than what the Romans actually wanted because that's how you made your living. And depending on what tax collector you were dealing with, those numbers could be pretty high. They could be pretty exorbitant. And so the average tax collector, whether they were honest or dishonest, it didn't matter. They were considered greedy. And then finally, this is an honor-shame society. This is not so much about individuals. It was about being a person of honor or being in a state of shame. And Matthew, by being a tax collector, just the nature of what he did, he was in a state of shame. So the Romans don't trust him. The Jews don't associate with him. And if you put all this together, Matthew, therefore, is a greedy, shameful, unclean, outcast traitor. How's that sound to you? There we go, yeah. And that's, that's where we're heading next, right? How many invitations do you think he received? Honestly, how many invitations? How many weddings or parties or feasts would he be welcome to attend? What do you think he did? Did he just kind of stand off in the distance and watch? Kind of, I wish I was there, but I can't, I can't go. Did he even watch? Did he get to the point in his life where he was like, I'm never going to be invited? And he probably knew full well that it was partly his own choosing. But... 
I'm not ever going to be invited, so I'm just going to go home and be lonely. Imagine the loneliness and the isolation. Now, of course, he might have hung out with other tax collectors, and we kind of get those images in the Bible where there's sinners that are kind of grouping themselves together according to the Pharisee standards, and they're wanting, Jesus, why are you eating there, right? So you see that association game that's being played here. But he probably is not receiving very many of these offers at all. And here's an even greater question. Imagine what kind of prospects he would have in terms of marriage. In a patriarchal culture like this, where the, the father decides everything, some of you have seen the musical Fiddler on the Roof, where the grandpa or the dad goes out and he makes a deal with somebody else who's either older or another dad, and they shake on it, they have an agreement, and they drink on it, and then they decide, hey, this is our deal. So in some cases, the women had no say. Do you think that any Jewish man who was pious and who was at the feet of the Pharisees, the teachers, would have said, oh yeah, Matthew, yeah, I can't wait till my daughter marries Matthew. I mean, honestly, he would not have had any prospects. Any prospects he did have would have been people from another tax collector family, or maybe even a Gentile, to be honest, because he was that far outside. And yet, and yet, this is the person who records for us this invitation to the ultimate feast. And he himself is invited to the only feast that truly matters. And so I'm going to give you four points about this feast from his perspective as we look at this parable of Christ in a little bit more detail. And so first, here's your first point for you. It says, see the inevitable wedding feast. Inevitable. That's a word that I like to say. Those of you who like Marvel superhero movies, the bad guy Thanos says this because there's all these multiple timelines, and in each timeline he's still doing the same thing, and he starts in the last movie saying, I am inevitable this equalizer in the universe. In this case, Thanos means death. In this case, the feast of life is inevitable. Pastor Dinger and I were actually talking before the service here today, and he brought up, and I'd, I'd, it's been a while since I'd heard this, but in this uh, culture, you received two invitations whenever there was a feast. There was the first invitation, and where you had your wedding clothes sent to you, whatever you were supposed to wear was given, but you didn't know when the feast was actually going to take place, and that was the actual second invitation. And so we know that it's going to happen. This invitation is extended. We know this first feast is inevitable because the work has already been done. And there is nothing that can stop this feast from taking place. It's not the world. It's not politics. It's current events or wars. The devil himself or anything else can stop this feast from taking place. So when we see the brokenness of the world, like we're seeing in Israel right now, every website, I was doing this with my high school students, just go to CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, New York Times. I'm not endorsing or not endorsing any website. I don't care where they are in the political spectrum. Guess what's on the top of every news page? Israel. And the brokenness that we see in Israel. When we see stuff like this, or even just in our own community, when we have great abundance, there should be no reason why people have hunger in our nation right now. And yet, it's everywhere. We see poverty, we see crime, and all these different things. We know, we know instinctually, that this is not what we're destined and designed for. So when Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose from the dead and ascended, the ultimate end of all things is promised, and God doesn't change, God doesn't lie, and God always keeps his promises. I got some high school kids that are kind of scattered around here, and they recognize this. It means God's immutable. God is not subject to change. He doesn't change. He always fulfills his promises. He always fulfills his word. And we see it, it's consistent in the Old and New Testaments, in the Isaiah passage we read, in this parable of Jesus, and in the book of Revelation. They all demonstrate that this feast is going to happen, whether we like it or not, and this is a good thing. Why? Because 
That means we have an answer to the suffering, death, and futility that we're all experiencing in this life. Everything has already been prepared. The arrangements have already been made, and there is nothing we can do to change or modify this, which is why this is inevitable. Another thing that I often do with my high school kids, and again, they're, they're in here and they'll recognize this right away, is we watch a current events news program called World Watch. And it's, the, it's about 10 minutes of current events from a Christian perspective. And they'll, they'll roll with their eyes because they say this somewhat facetiously, but I love it that they say it anyways because they say it over and over and over again. And that's at the end of every episode, either the host or they have people that watch the show film this and send it in. And at the end of every current event, even if it's all bad news, at the end of every current event it says, whatever the news the purpose of the Lord will stand. Over and over, whatever the news, the purpose of the Lord will stand. It's really cool because they all start saying it, right? Like, I hope you realize what you're saying. Whatever the news, the purpose of the Lord will stand. So God's wedding feast will stand and nothing can prevent it. And again, imagine Matthew thinking about this, realizing that he didn't deserve and shouldn't expect to participate at all, and yet he's invited. Which brings us to our next point, which is to see the king's invitation. You have two passages from this, Matthew, uh, that's verse 3a in Matthew 22 and verse 9, where this invitation keeps growing and getting extended. And so when you look at commentaries or study Bibles on this, it's almost certain that the first invitation that's described here is to the Jews, to God's people, right? God's chosen people, and that he's extending this feast. Hey, everything's ready, so I'm going to send out my messengers, the prophets, right? And send out others to say, hey, the feast is here. And then, of course, we end with John the Baptist, and then, of course, Christ himself. And we see the reaction to this invitation. And then Christ extends that invitation to all, to the highways, the people on the main road, the good and the bad. Matthew probably, I would guess at this point, is including himself on the bad part, right? There's this invitation. And when I'm honest with myself, I look at this and I'm saying, yeah, God found me on the highway in the bad section too. And yet I'm still invited to this feast. It's an incredible invitation, and it includes all peoples because of this. Now, that's quite the invitation. There's also a sad part to this parable, if you think about it as well. You can view this from both law and gospel, right? That's a theme we teach around here, and it's always good to remind us that all of Scripture has these, these themes of law and gospel. And the law accuses us, right? The law tells us this is God's standard. This is who you are. It's that mirror. It shows us our condition. And then, of course, it also shows us in the gospel, the scriptures, how great of a savior we have and God's promise. And we get both of these in scripture, and this passage has both of them. And because in these surrounding verses, we see that even though the host, God, is sparing no expense, he's done everything. He sent the invitation, he set up the feast, he has spared no ex expense, people reject this invitation. And in some cases, they even attack and to try to destroy the messengers. And then at the end of the parable, we have an individual who tries to get into the feast on his own terms without the proper wedding clothes. And we're going to come back to that here in just a little bit. And so my question is, is if we're honest for ourselves, with ourselves, I should say, we do this also. We want to live our lives on our own terms and make excuses as to why we can't attend. So I'm going to give you some excuses that I've heard, you know, culturally or from individuals or in the media or in books or on the radio or in popular media or whatever it is. These are some of the excuses that I've heard. Tell me if these sound familiar to you, or maybe, unfortunately, you or I have said some of these. Here we go. Maybe we say this, God should just accept me for who I am. Think about that with the wedding clothes analogy. Here's another one. God is loving and tolerant, so he wouldn't reject anyone. So it really doesn't matter what clothes you have on. Well, here's another one. Maybe we say, 
Well, that's just those people. I'm not really that bad. Sure, I make a little mistakes, little oopsies now and again, but God's going to accept me anyways because I'm basically good. Or maybe how about this one? It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe in something. That's called fideism, faith in faith itself rather than the object of that faith, right? So faith in faith itself. Or here's another one. All religions are equally valid, so you'll be at the feast regardless. Or maybe we say that God is there when we need him, but we should just live good moral lives. You know, as long as you don't hurt anybody else, you're probably all right. Or maybe we're just too busy. Or maybe we have more important things to do in our own minds. Now, we see the results of the excuse-making and hostile response at the beginning of the parable. In verse 8, when those excuses are made, God says that those people are not worthy to enter the feast. And then at the end, when we act presumptuously, the person's kicked out. So then we got to ask the question, what makes us worthy? Because in this passage, it doesn't say where the clothes are. It's probably in that first invitation, but it doesn't say how we're supposed to accept the invitation. And it doesn't, I mean, why does this person show up? Why does he show up without any clothes? I mean, we don't get a lot of that information. And so we're going to get a little bit more into this now with how do we accept this invitation properly and how do we get those wedding clothes? Because I'm going to use a double negative, so I'm going to say it twice. God doesn't want us to not be with him. I'll say that again. God doesn't want us to not be with him. In fact, quite the opposite, which brings me to my third point here, which is to see the desire of the king, see the desire of the host of the feast. What's the, what's the desire? He wants the wedding hall, the, hall, the entire hall, to be filled with guests. Or as we say around grace, God wants heaven to be full. He wants the wedding hall filled. We see this throughout scripture, by the way. If we go to the Old Testament and look at Ezekiel 18, God says that he does not desire the death of the sinner, but that they should turn away from their ways and live. In 2 Peter 3, when asking about what, why God waits so long to return, Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Notice that it's a consistent theme, by the way. We have Old Testament and New Testament. There's this kind of popular view, and it's a popular view. It's not necessarily, you know, a Bible scholar view, but it's the idea that, well, the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New Testament. You know, the God of the Old Testament's really mean, but the God of the New Testament's really nice and loving, and so I don't really like reading the Old Testament because it's kind of nasty. But think about what I just said. That was from Ezekiel in the Old Testament, God does not want the death of the sinner. He wants everybody to turn and live. So that's a false dichotomy. So don't let somebody say the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New Testament. No, the Old Testament is the cradle of Christ, to use Luther's words. We see Christ in the Old Testament. So that's just an aside for you. We see this as a constant theme that God wants heaven to be full and he wants Jew and Gentile alike to be at the feast. And so how do we do this then? Because if I can't do this on my own merits, if I don't have the right clothes, if I don't know how to respond to the invitation, God has to provide a way, a single only way, which leads us to our final point, which is to see the eternal bride. This bride, of course, is us. It's the church. It's the people of God. It brings us to full circle. Let's think about Matthew now. Like Matthew, we have nothing to offer God on our own merits or worthiness, in our own works. We are outsiders, and we can't even dream of having the right clothes on. In fact, if we're really honest with ourselves, the only clothes that we're wearing are grave clothes. Like Lazarus in the tomb, Christ has to say, take those clothes off. And then put the clothes on that I'm going to give you. As Paul says in Ephesians, we are dead in our trespasses. We're dead in our sins. We are dead men and women walking. 
and yet we somehow are going to be invited to this feast. So how do we get worthy? It's through the clothing provided by Christ and only Christ. This clothing is provided through faith by Christ the bridegroom, and that's what gains us entrance. This clothing is clean. And by clean, I mean absolutely spotless. There's no spots, there's no tears, there's no stains, there's no imperfections, there's no mistakes. As a dad, when I try to get ready for school and my kids all give me hugs after eating breakfast, I appreciate this. Okay? Because when I come to school, I probably have marks all over me and I have to go and go fix these things. I don't have to worry about that. But think about this spiritually. All the mistakes, that laundry list of sins. How, would, how many of you would want to go back from the day you were born to where you are right now and see every action, every thought, every dream that you've ever had? I mean, like if it was like a file cabinet, right? So you could do it by date. On June 10th, 1999, what was I doing? What was I thinking? What was I, what was I practicing? And then I go in the future. How about July 7th, 2008? I'm just throwing out random dates. How was I doing? How many of you would like to see that list? And yet, you don't have that list when you go to heaven. You don't have that list because you are in Christ. Because in our baptisms, we have put on Christ, as Paul says in Romans 6, so we can die and rise with him. In Holy Communion, when we practice Holy Communion, Christ feeds us and sustains us, forgiving our sins and strengthening our faith. The Holy Spirit works through the Word of God to call us to God and to show us our identity in Christ. So this is what we mean by gospel or good news, where God does all the work for us. God, think about this. If in the parable itself, God the Father here, right? Number one, he sends the invitation. That's all the work of God. Then God prepares the feast, does all the work, right? And then God gives us the wedding clothes through the work of Christ. There is nothing that we're bringing. This is a feast of sheer grace. It's a gift, or as we say, technically, it's unmerited favor. So I love the fact that we are called Grace Lutheran Church because we're all about God's grace. It's all gifts. We're all about the gifts that God gives us and celebrating those gifts. God clothes us in the right clothes to attend the feast, and God sustains us and remakes us so that we can be in that banquet hall forever. The wedding feast for the king's son. Think about what a feast that will be. When's the last time you thought about heaven? I try to think about that more as opposed to, man, when God comes back, I really hope that I've got all the stuff on my agenda done. You know, I really hope that I've, no, he can come back at any moment and that's a good thing. Do we long for that kingdom? I want to long for that kingdom and think about what kind of feast this will be. The Bible calls it, as we've heard, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, when God will swallow up death forever and wipe away tears from all faces. When we look at those prayer requests and we see things like, friends suffering with cancer, or we see mourning the loss of a family member, or we see the Middle East and all these different things. Don't we want death to be wiped out forever? Don't we want those tears to be wiped away? It also says, of course, in Revelation, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that includes you and I. You are invited, and your saying yes to the invitation starts with coming here. When we celebrate Holy Communion, when we celebrate the Word of God forever, we're getting little slices of heaven on earth. Eternal life starts now. Invited by God to the wedding feast of his son, chosen by God himself to be clothed in his righteousness. There is no greater honor than that in all the world. And so as we say at communion, but we can say this in general, all things are now ready. Let us come to the feast. To God alone the glory. Amen.
If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. Thank you.